Shalom, everyone. I'm Monty Judah with Lion and Lamb Ministries. Welcome to our program in the study of the book of Ezekiel. We have entitled our program, The Visions of Ezekiel. We're in the midst of that study right now. In fact, if you want, turn in your Bible there to chapter 2. Let me do a very, very quick review before we go into this particular episode that we have. Ezekiel was taken captive by the Babylonians out of Jerusalem when he was 25 years old. He was taken to the land of Babylon. And at the age of 30, when he would normally have assumed the duties as a Levitical priest serving the temple, God came to him and commissioned him to be a prophet for him to the children of Israel that were in Babylon during that captivity. And he had this incredible vision of seeing the throne of God. In the last episode, we talked about quite a bit the living creatures, the burning wheels. All of that sums up, along with other prophets and other visions that we've had about God's throne, that that is his fiery chariot. That is his mobile throne. And apparently, the way this works out is... Almighty God, who normally is beyond the stars of the universe, and his throne is set up there in eternity, whenever he comes here to the earth to talk to somebody, for example, when he came down to Mount Sinai, whenever he came to see Ezekiel, apparently there's quite a bit of atmospheric disturbance. There's a great storm, there's lightning, there's thunder, there's the atmospheric disturbed, and that was part of Ezekiel's vision, that there was a great storm, and then he began to see the throne of God that was coming forward. And then God begins to now commission him to speak for him to the children of Israel that are there in Babylon, and that's what brings us to where we're at right now. Let me take you now to chapter 2. Ezekiel has just now seen this, and God is now going to commission him to speak to them. Chapter 2, verse 1, it says, Then he said to me, Son of man, stand on your feet that I may speak with you. And as he spoke to me, the Spirit entered me and set me on my feet, and I heard him speaking to me. And then he said to me, Son of man, I am sending you to the sons of Israel, to a rebellious people who have rebelled against me, they and their fathers have transgressed against me to this very day. And I'm sending you to them who are stubborn and obstinate children, and you shall say to them, thus says the Lord God. Let me just stop there at the moment. The children of Israel misbehaved, and that was the reason why they were taken captive. But even after they've gone into captivity... God says they are continuing to be rebellious and disobedient before him. And so when he's dispatching Ezekiel and commissioning him to be a prophet for him, he's telling Ezekiel, these people are still going in the wrong direction. They were going in the wrong direction when they were in the land and I cast them out. They're still going in the wrong direction here scattered in the hands of their captives. And by the way, that's a common understanding about the children of Israel, even the greater exile where we're all scattered all over the nations. We're still a very stubborn, stiff-necked people, and we don't obey the Lord. We come up with a thousand excuses. We come up with alternate ways to live. But all of it is not to listen to the Lord, not to pay attention to what the Lord says, not follow the Lord. Forget the Lord. And to this day, as Ezekiel had to face in his day, we have the same dynamic going on. Now, if you go up to, let's take us for a moment. If you sit down and you kind of look at God's people, are God's people really obeying the Lord? 
the answer would have to be no. Flat no. There are many instances of idolatry amongst God's people in the nations today. You don't need me to go through and list them. They're abundant every which way we look. Furthermore, do we obey the commandments of the Lord? No, we come up with theology to argue against the commandments until the crows crow at night. We're not an obedient people. We're in exile. And in the midst of that, instead of learning our lesson and turning back to the Lord, we continually perpetuate what we're doing. Ezekiel is being called and he's being told, yep, that's the people I'm sending you to. And basically he's going to say to them, they're not going to listen to you. They wouldn't listen to me. They ain't going to listen to you. Even though you say, thus saith the Lord, because they've rejected me, they're going to reject you. Let me continue to read for you just a little bit further. Verse five, as for them, whether they listen or not, for their rebellious house, they will know that a prophet has been among them. And you, son of man, neither fear them nor fear their words. Though thistles and thorns are with you and you sit on scorpions, neither fear their words nor be dismayed at their presence. For they are a rebellious house. But you shall speak my words to them, whether they listen or not, for they are rebellious. You're still going to say what I want to have said, regardless of whether they listen or not, we're still going to say it. And Ezekiel is commissioned to be that voice to carry those words to him. Now, you, son of man, listen to what I'm speaking to you. Do not be rebellious like the rebellious house. Open your mouth and eat what I'm giving you. Then I looked, and behold, a hand was extended to me, and lo, a scroll was in it. When he spread it out before me, it was written on the front and the back, and the written on it were lamentations, mourning, and woe. Chapter 3. Then he said to me, Son of man, eat what you find, eat this scroll, and go and speak to the house of Israel. So I opened my mouth, and he fed me this scroll. And he said to me, Son of man, feed your stomach, fill your body with the scroll which I'm giving you. I then ate it, and it was sweet as honey in my mouth. Let's stop and think for a moment. Why would it be sweet? I mean, it's full of lamentations and woe. I would have thought that the scroll would have been bitter or sour What is he talking about when he says it was as sweet as honey? Well, I came to understand this concept. This is also spoken of in the book of Revelation. John did the same thing. And other men that have been into deep things with the Lord, they will share an observation with you. Sometimes when God comes with a very, very difficult word, you're in the face of great trauma, great difficulties. As you come into God's presence, as you come right into that moment, the people will testify to you that have had this experience that the cup they are drinking is very bitter. The scroll they're eating is not good. However, the fellowship with God at that moment is the sweetest they've ever had. That's how close they are to the Lord. And that's what Ezekiel is expressing here. I am coming so close into the presence of God, even eating a scroll of woe and lamentations. It is still sweet to me because I'm in God's presence. That's how closely I connected I am to the Lord. It is sweet to be in deep fellowship with God. In the midst of everything going on, that part is very, very good. I had the personal experience early in my ministry of I had some brethren who not only rejected me, but were vicious. And their words were filled with hatred. And it was just completely shocking to me. How could a believer 
treat anyone in that manner. And I certainly had not done anything merit the kind of viciousness that I got. And it, it affected me. In fact, I went before God. I had to confess sin. I went into God and I said, they made me so angry. I think I hate them. And I was there to confess it that I know I'm not supposed to. I'm supposed to love my brethren, but I feel like I hate them. God spoke to me in my spirit at that moment and said the words to me. He said, Monty, did you think you were going to drink from a different cup than your master drinks from? And I suddenly realized that he was rejected. He was hated. People were vicious toward him. His own brethren, his own fellow citizens. And yet I understood that fellowship with him was very sweet. And it was energizing to me. I mean, I got up off my feet and I would, felt strong. That I don't care if they do reject me. I don't care if what they say about me. I'm, I'm going to go forward. I'm going to serve the Lord whether they like it or not, whether they listen or not. Ezekiel is having the same experience. He's getting his heart right before God to go and do what is going to be a difficult task. Verse 4, Then he said to me, Son of man, go to the house of Israel, speak with my words to them, for you're not being sent to a people of unintelligible speech or difficult language, but to the house of Israel, nor to many peoples of unintelligible speech or difficult language whose words you cannot understand, but I have sent you to them who should listen to you. Yet the house of Israel will not be willing to listen to you since they're not willing to listen to me. Surely the whole house of Israel is stubborn and obstinate. And when he makes that statement, the whole house, he's talking about the house of Israel, the northern kingdom. He's talking about the southern kingdom, the house of Judah, the whole house of Israel. We're all stubborn. We will look for any alternative we can as long as we don't have to listen to the Lord. And he's being told, they're not going to listen to you because you're going to be speaking for me and they don't listen to me, so they're not going to listen to you. So with that said, I mean, you got to ask yourself, well, what's the point? Why commission Ezekiel to do this if everything he says is going to be rejected and they won't listen to it? Verse 9, like emery harder than flint, I have made your forehead. Do not be afraid of them or be dismayed before them, though they are a rebellious house. Moreover, he said to me, Son of man, take into your heart all the words which I shall speak to you and listen closely and go to the exiles, to the sons of your people and speak to them and tell them whether they listen or not. Thus says the Lord God. Then the spirit lifted me up and I heard a great rumbling sound behind me. Blessed be the glory of the Lord in his place. And I heard the sound of the wings of the living beings touching one another and the sound of the wheels beside me. There was a great rumbling sound. So the spirit lifted me up and took me away. And I went embittered in the rage of my spirit and the hand of the Lord was strong on me. Then I came to the exiles who lived before the river Chabar at Tel Aviv. And I sat there seven days where they were living, causing consternation among them. You know, when he talked about the example, I'm going to make your forehead like emery and like flint. Let, let me just tell you something quickly about archaeologists. I learned this as a young man. Different minerals, different rock stones and so forth. One of the things the archaeologists want to measure is how hard is the rock. And the easy way to determine how hard a rock is, is you take another rock and you take it and you put it up against it and you grate it. You try to scratch into the rock. Now, if you're successful scratching into this rock with this one, then this rock is harder because the harder rock will injure the other one. 
However, if you can't do it and you start affecting the stone you're scratching with, then that one is a harder. Basically, what God said to Ezekiel, I'm going to make your forehead, your will, your presence to be like a very, very hard rock. And you're going to go up against these hard-headed, stubborn, obstinate people. And guess what's going to happen? They're the ones that are going to crumble. They're the ones that are going to be proved they're softer than this stone here. And he's going to make Ezekiel to be this very difficult, hard stone that will cut into him. And in fact, these last words that I just read to him, he goes down, and what does he do for seven days? He is causing a major consternation to them. He is down there grinding away with them, and they are crumbling. They are not able to resist him. They're not able to stand up to him. One of the things that I have experienced in my life, and I think that others will understand this principle, a lot of times when you go up and you give, let's say you share some wisdom with someone about something, and they're resistive to it. They don't want to follow it. We've all seen those moments where suddenly things happen, and the words that you spoke turn out to be true. And they have to come to terms with that you did speak correctly and they were wrong. And that's difficult. That's a little bit like two rocks coming at each other. We're going to find out who's harder about that. The old, I told you so. The one speaking that is the harder rock, not the other one. Essentially, this is the dynamic that Ezekiel's being sent into. This is his ministry is to go in and to speak to this obstinate people and they are going to end up crumbling before him. It's going to be said to him. In fact, it repeatedly is said to him. There's a day coming when they will know that a prophet had been sent to him. At first they were rejecting. And this is the result of the lack of wisdom, the lack of obedience, having a hard heart against God. By the way, let's just bring that out for a moment. So let's say you have a very hard heart and God wants to come and deal with you about it. Do you think his heart is harder than yours? Do you think he has more strength in his heart than you have in yours? Do you think you're going to actually resist him and you're going to prove that you're harder than he is? I can assure you you're not. By the way, we have an excellent example in the historical record of Pharaoh who hardened his heart as much as he possibly could and ended up capitulating and yielding to God. And anytime we, as brethren, decide to take a hard heart toward the Lord, we're going to lose. We're going to lose this proposition. And Ezekiel's being dispatched to people and Ezekiel's being explained to them, they're going to lose. And he's going to be doing this service and this duty with regard to this whole matter. Let me take you now to verse 16. Now it came about at the end of the seven days that when the Lord came to me saying, Son of man, I have appointed you as a watchman to the house of Israel. Whenever you hear word from my mouth, warn them from me. When I say to the wicked, you shall surely die, and you do not warn him or speak out to warn the wicked from his wicked way that he may live, that wicked man shall die in his iniquity, but his blood I will require at your hand. Yet if you have warned the wicked, and he does not turn from his wickedness or from his wicked way. He shall die in his iniquity, but you have delivered yourself. Again, when a righteous man turns away from his righteousness and commits iniquity, and I place an obstacle before him, he shall die. Since you have not warned him, he shall die in his sin. But his righteous deeds which he have done shall not be remembered but his blood I will require at your hand. Even for a righteous man, 
if you give warning, the blood is not on you. But if you don't give warning, you will be held accountable as well. Verse 21, however, if you have warned the righteous man that the righteous should not sin, and he does not sin, he shall surely live because he took warning and you have delivered yourself. There's a direct relationship between your person before God, the eyes and the ears and the wisdom that God gives you as to whether or not you should speak, you should attempt to help others in the matter of the Lord. Let me just for the sake of discussion, let's elevate this point and take application. We're coming to the end of the ages. Every one of us have a sense of that things are changing. Things are changing not for the good. And we've all heard the scripture that talks about the coming of the Messiah again, the day of the Lord, God's judgment upon the world, things of that nature. How often do you actually speak about that with somebody else that you meet? Do you speak that with your people that you work with? Do you share those things with your family? How about your neighbor, your friends? Do you ever tell them, hey, guys, we need to be paying attention to this. You know, it looks kind of ominous here. And the Lord has said he's going to be coming back. What are we doing about that? Are we ignoring it? When we see people, whoever they are, going down a path that's contrary to the Lord, do we say anything at all to them? Now, I'm not talking about that you have to go and judge them. What I'm talking about is what God's talking about. Will you give warning? Will you give them, uh, share your perspective and say, hey, you might want to reconsider what you're doing here. You might want to think about what's happening and process that with the world that we're living in. According to this, God says for every one of us, if you see things happening and you don't warn others around you, unbelievers or believers or friends or neighbors or family or fellow brethren, you're going to be in trouble with the Lord. Part of the reason why God gives you the insight and the understanding of certain things so that you will advance the kingdom and you'll be able to share it. This is very emphatically what is being set up with Ezekiel. Ezekiel's being told, you have to do this. Your own life is based in this concept. Verse 22, and the hand of the Lord was on me there, and I sat up, and I said, get up, go out to the plain, there I will speak to you. So I got up, and I went out to the plain, and behold, the glory of the Lord was standing there like the glory which I saw at the river Kebar. And I fell on my face, and the Spirit then entered me and made me stand on my feet, spoke with me and said to me, go shut yourself up in your house. And as for you, son of man, they will put ropes on you and bind you with them so that you cannot go out among them. Moreover, I will make your tongue stick to the roof of your mouth so that you'll be dumb and cannot be a man who rebukes them, for they are a rebellious house. This is fascinating. He said, I'm sending you to speak. Now he says, now I'm going to have you bound with ropes. You're going to be stuck in your house and your tongue is going to stick to the roof of your mouth. and You'll be like dumb. You can't speak. Verse 27. But when I speak to you, I will open your mouth and you will say to them, thus says the Lord God, he who hears, let him hear. He who refuses, let him refuse, for they are a rebellious house. That last statement is that you will speak and say, make your own decision. Do you want to listen to the Lord or do you want to refuse what the Lord is saying? Make your own decision. I, Ezekiel, am not forcing you to do anything. God is not forcing you to do anything. You decide. By the way, that's good counsel for everybody that we come into contact with. When I have met with people who have rejected what I said, I walk away at peace knowing, hey, they're making the decision that they want to make. 
So they're going to stick with their decision. Okay, they made their decision. But those who choose the Lord, well, then good. They, they chose the Lord. They, they're credited for that. But it's a case of don't ignore the question. Don't ignore the warning. Make some kind of decision. Do something with it and instead of just ignoring it. All right, we come to chapter 4. Now you, son of man, get yourself a brick and place it before you and inscribe a city on it, Jerusalem. Now, I don't know how big this brick was, but apparently it was a pretty good-sized block. It wasn't your normal building brick that we think of. It was a stone, but it could be used to put into a wall or into a house, and it was and he inscribed on there the name Jerusalem. And he's got this little mini brick here. And then he says, then lay siege against it, build a siege wall. Raise up a ramp and pitch camps and place battering rams against it all around. When in ancient warfare, when you had a walled city and you had an invading army and they wanted to overtake the city, generally they couldn't burst through the gate. They could batter it and so forth, but the gate was designed to be highly defendable, and you could only send a very small force through the narrow gate, and the other opposing force was very strong, and they could beat back your soldiers. Getting through the gate was extremely difficult. In fact, the letter Shin, that, that looks like a W, that we put on the mezuzah, you know, you put on the frame of the door, the mezuzah, we put the letter Shin. The letter Shin is first letter in Shaddai. Almighty God. What's the letter Shin mean? It means the destroyer of the door. Almighty God is called Almighty God because there's no door that can resist him. There's no gate that can keep him out. Depend, no matter how you defend it, he goes through a gate, he goes through a door like a hot knife through butter. And so he's called the destroyer of the door. This is one of the evidence of being Almighty God. This is part of that definition. The commander of a host of an invading army, the strength of the commander would be known by how quickly and how powerfully could he conquer a walled city. If he could go through and his forces could take the city out quickly, he was a great commander. He had a great force. He had a great reputation. But if he came up against it was a very strong hold, then he would have to use other techniques to be able to defeat the city one of which was that they would build a ramp. They would gather dirt and rock, and they would pile it up against the wall of the city, and they'd raise the elevation of the ground outside the wall to where that there's a ramp that leads up and over the wall. That way his army, a great number of them, could go up the ramp, go over the wall, and get into the city. For those of you who've ever been to Masada, one of the things that you'll see there is an excellent example of a siege mound that was made by the Romans. Now, Masada is this great fortress up on top of this incredible precipice and high mountain, had walls around it and so forth. And there was a very narrow path that would get you up to the gate, and there was no way the Romans could get into that thing and successfully conquer it. So you know what the Romans did? They built camps all down around the bottom, and they built this incredible ramp They kept bringing debris and bringing material, and they built this ramp that goes up the side of the mountain up to the wall and finally completed it, and that's how the Romans were able to breach the walls and defeat Masada. Well, he's saying, set up the stone here, and I want you to build a ramp, a siege ramp. I want you to show the city being besieged. Now, before we go any further, let's take a spot check of where we at in world history with Ezekiel at the moment. Jerusalem was captured by the Babylonians. 
They took the first set of prisoners. They took all the articles from the temple, and he was taken captive. But the city of Jerusalem was not destroyed. It was not destroyed. It was still there. But the prophecy that we're now hearing and what he's doing is he's going to, he's explaining to the captives very shortly the city of Jerusalem is going to be besieged and is going to be destroyed. The walls will be torn down. The battering rams will knock the walls down. The siege mound will be put up and it will be captured and it will be destroyed. Temple destroyed, walls destroyed, the city will be destroyed. He's giving them the prophecy that it's coming. And he's using this rather interesting little model. I've got this brick, and we're going to build it. Let's put some dirt up against it. See, that's the siege mound. That's what's going to happen. Here, let's have some sticks. We'll batter the walls. You know, this is what's going to happen to Jerusalem. It must have been an interesting moment for people there listening to Ezekiel to look at this little model, if you will, of this brick representing Jerusalem and all these things he was doing. He was showing them, this is what the Babylonians are going to do to you. This is what it's going to do to our city. By the way, when we get to chapter 33 of Ezekiel, that's when Ezekiel got the word that Jerusalem had fallen. At this point, Jerusalem has not fallen. The city has not been destroyed, but we're getting to the point where we're going to get there. And he's now giving this, God's giving this message to him, using this little model to explain to him what's going to be happening with Jerusalem. I love modeling and doing dinky things. I love landscape modeling in particular. And this just is, intrigues me. I mean, I, I can see this picture. I can see what Ezekiel's trying to say. And I'm wondering, how come you didn't get the message? I mean, this is a beautiful model to explain what's going to be happening. So he goes, uh, let me go a little bit further with this here. He goes out into the plain there and he's bound up and he's got this brick. We're in chapter four, verse four. As for you, lie down on your left side and lay the iniquity of the house of Israel on it, and you shall bear their iniquity for the number of days that you lie on it. For I have assigned a number of days corresponding to the years of their iniquity, 390 days. He's talking about the northern kingdom here. He says, I want you to lay on your left side for 390 days each day for one year of judgment that I'm going to put on them. And when you've completed these, you shall lie down a second time, but on your right side and bear the iniquity of the house of Judah. Now, the house of Judah is part of those that are in Babylon at this time. I've signed it to you for 40 days, a day for each year. Then you shall set your face toward the siege of Jerusalem with your arm bared and prophesy against it. Now, behold, I will put ropes on you so that you cannot turn from one side to the other until you have completed the days of your siege. Very interesting moment here for him. If he's bound in ropes, then he's very limited in his physical abilities. And how do you feed yourself? You know, in the midst of that, how do you take care of yourself? Verse 9, by the way, I have brought a prop for you. I'm sure most of you have heard of this. You ever heard of Ezekiel bread? They actually sell it. And I know some people have made homemade versions of it. And this is uh, wrapped up. It says Ezekiel 4.9 bread. Here we are at Ezekiel 4.9. Here's the bread. And this bread is made out of the ingredients that we're going to read in this verse. In verse 9 it says, But as for you, take wheat, barley, beans, lentils, millet, and spelt, and put them in one vessel and make them into bread for yourself, 
and you shall eat it according to the number of the days that you lie on your side, 390 days. And your food, which you shall eat, be 20 shekels a day by weight, and you shall eat it from time to time. What they do is they take each of these grains, and by the way, you can do this with beans too. You mill them. You mill them down to a flour, and you mix all these different flours together, and you make a bread. You let it rise a little bit, bake it, and you've got a bread that has all these different ingredients in it. And that's what this bread has. It has all those grains that were listed here in this verse that has made a loaf of bread. This is the bread that he was eating. Let me go a little bit further with you as to what he says. Verse 11, And the water you drink will be the sixth part of a hen of measuring. You shall drink it from time to time. And you shall take it as a barley cake, having baked it in their sight over human dung. This bread, God said, I want you to make that bread. Now, when you bake it, I want you to bake it over a fire fueled by human dung. Are you disgusted yet? Then the Lord said, thus shall the sons of Israel eat their bread unclean among the nations where I shall banish them. Verse 14, but I said, Lord God, Behold, I have never defiled, for from my youth until now I have never eaten what has died of itself or torn and by pieces, nor has any unclean meat ever entered my mouth. Ezekiel's reminding the Lord, I have kept your commandments concerning clean and unclean. I have never eaten anything that's unkosher. I've never participated in prepared foods in an unclean manner. I've never done this. By the way, it would be clear that if you made a stove that was made out of the fire of human dung, that would be an unclean stove. And the food prepared there would be considered unclean. Verse 15, then he said to me, see, I shall give you cow's dung in place of human dung over which you will prepare your bread. A cow chip. By the way, I don't know if you know this, but when the pioneers came across America, across the plains of America, The pioneers used to refer to this as the great American desert out here in the plains. There were no trees. It was a lot of prairie grass. We had a lot of big herds of buffalo running around. The only time you'd ever find a tree was maybe one growing near a creek or a river. Out in the rest of it, there was nothing. So how did this people coming across in covered wagons and so forth, where'd they get the firewood from to be able to have a campfire to cook their food and whatever when they were traveling and people that were living in the plains? How did they do this? The Native Americans, how, how were they able to build a campfire and cook their food and prepare? Well, I can tell you what it was. It was buffalo chips. These big herds of buffalo were dropping buffalo chips. Now, out here in the hot sun, they dry out. They're this fibrous material. You throw a couple of buffalo chips in it, burns very good. Burns nice and hot. That's essentially what God did here, is he gave him some cow chips and used it to cook. Cow chips and buffalo chips is not considered defiled or unclean. Those are kosher animals. And you're using all the parts of the kosher animal. In this case, the refuse dried out. It burns and it can do something for you because it's a clean animal. That's a very interesting dynamic. The the fact that God said to him, I want you to prepare and bake this bread that way because he wants it to send a message. And you probably had the same reaction. The children of Israel had the same reaction that I had. When you heard the words, oh, I want you to bake this bread over human dung, I'm certain there was something inside of your soul 
some little flag got tripped and said, what? You know, I'm not doing that. That's disgusting. Yep, that's right. You're absolutely right about that. So what is God trying to say? He's trying to say to the children of Israel, you people are disgusting. Your sins are grievous. You disgust me with the way that you behave and the way you act. Not only have you left me, not only have you forgotten me, but the things that you do are disgusting. I hate to break the bubble for you guys, but that bread right there is supposed to be testifying to us about how grievous our sins are scattered in the nations. Now, I know a lot of health conscious people say, oh, this is wonderful bread. It's very healthy for you. Yeah, Ezekiel survived on this as a part of the punishment on the exiles. You can live off this. I mean, you can live off of it. But this is your idea of sweet bread from God. This is God's testimony to us of how how disgusting we are. It may be nutritious, and Ezekiel was able to live off of it, but I don't know that I want to celebrate this. In fact, I shared with you when we began our study in Ezekiel that some of this is very difficult. And when I've gone through, I find great difficulty in reading this and considering all the thoughts and so forth. I don't feel good about God reading me the riot act and chewing me out for all of my sins. I much prefer him being kindly to me and forgiving me and and so forth. I don't want to resist the Lord. I don't want to make him so upset he's got to come and chew me out. Israel did that. And I fear that the greater Israel that's around the world, we're still doing it. We're still in exile. And I'm praying that somehow or another, we'll get things turned around. God will be merciful to us and bring us back from this exile. And in fact, as we get into this a little bit further, that's what we're going to learn from Ezekiel. He's going to end on this book telling us about how he's going to bring us back from exile, how he's going to clean us up, how he's going to turn us around, and how he's going to help us. That's the part of the book I'm in a great big hurry to get to, but I got to cover these parts right now about what God had to say through Ezekiel and his commission to the service. So that's our episode for this week. I look forward to seeing you next week as we continue with chapter 5 of the book of Ezekiel, the visions of Ezekiel. Shabbat Shalom.